Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. So we are in week five of our series, Identity Crisis. Anybody... Uh, feeling solved and fixed yet. You know, we're, we're trying to get our, 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 our minds right as it pertains to who we are in Jesus Christ. Through this series so far, we've discovered that we're accepted. Amen? We are secure. And today, we're going to discover we're significant. We're significant. When you think of your childhood, what were some of your favorite childhood board games? You know, back before the Nintendo and, and all the digital stuff, and before you had a Nintendo on your phone, you actually had to interact with other people to have family fun, which required board games. And I remember one of the uh, first board games I ever had was Shoots and Ladders. Anybody remember Shoots and Ladders? Yeah? Anybody still have Shoots and Ladders at home? Yeah, that was a good time, right, going up and going down. Uh, what about Connect Four? Yeah, Connect Four. So I loved Connect Four. Matter of fact, we, we got Connect Four for our kids when uh, they were younger, and it was so fun giving them panic attacks of why they couldn't beat me, right? Just, just beating them over and over again. It was a lot of fun. They didn't think so, but I had a good time. And, uh, but my heart softened over the years, and I taught them the triangle pattern. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And now they beat me. So now... so. You know, I taught them my, my tricks, but um, it was all good. Um, what about Candyland? Anybody have Candyland? Oh, yeah? Any boys want to admit a uh, little crush on Princess Frostine? I mean, come on now. She was, she's the one, right? You, you get Frostine, and you get all the way towards the end, and you're almost there. I, I like, it was almost like PTSD getting that gumdrop or the gingerbread man and having to go all the way back to the beginning. So these, these were fun games, but I think the mother of all childhood board games is checkers. Checkers is like the staple. This is like the best, the best game ever. And I, I think it's such a simple concept to play. It's not complicated like chess. So it's very simple, but it does require a lot of strategy. So learning this game, it, it was amazing to, to see you have the, you know, the, the red and the black uh, checkers, and you get to move one space at a time. But if an opening happens, you can jump the other person and knock them out. It's so fun. So you have to plan all of your moves strategically because what is an advantage to you could then become detrimental to you. So, so you have to plan accordingly. And, and so I remember as a kid just like being really anxious, like, okay, I want to win. I want to win. I got to make sure I move all in the right spot. But then I learned if I somehow managed to get my checker piece across to the other side of the board, something magical happened. Right? Let's all say it together. King me. Right? You get kinged. And what happens when you get kinged? You get all the power. Because now, not just one direction, you get to move two directions. And not just one jump, but you add a triple or quadruple jump, and your, your opponent is done for. 
So what I like to do is I like to get as many kings as I can and then use my, my crew, my kingly crew, like a pack of wolves and slowly zero in on all the opposing pieces to uh, corner them to the point where they can't move but one space. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else do that? You, you get your pieces situated so all they can do is move forward or move backward. That, that's all they can do. And you just sit there and let them sweat it out. And then you have to decide, okay, what are you going to, you're going to be nice and let them take one of your kings, give them an opportunity, or are you just going to mess with them until they give up and let you take the last piece? And I'm too competitive to be nice, so I always try to win. What I love about checkers, though, is that process of becoming king relates to us as believers in Jesus Christ. We can relate it to this Christian life and who we are as believers because when we come to Christ, something magical happens. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. Behold, a new life has begun. Paul says it again in Galatians 6.15. He says, it doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Somebody say new creation. We've been transformed into a new creation. Well, what I love what Paul just said here in Galatians 6, he says, it doesn't matter if you've been circumcised. This was, this was a, a word to the Jews who had become Christians, who grew up with this mindset that in order to be acceptable by God, you had to do this religious act. You had to physically alter your body as a male to be included into the family or the people of God. And here Paul is saying, what you do physically no longer applies. It no longer matters. That that's the religious way of thinking, that I have to do something to be acceptable by God. He says, all that matters is that you're transformed into a new creation. So put away all the religious thinking. Put away with all the stuff you think you have to do. That doesn't get you into the people of God or the family of God. Now, something else. You have to be transformed. And when we were transformed, it happened the moment we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We became a new creation. Now, if you break down that, that terminology, new creation, the word new can mean recently made, fresh, unused, unworn, of a new kind, unprecedented, novel, uncommon, or unheard of. I love that word unprecedented. Somebody say, I'm unprecedented. If you're a child of God, you are unprecedented. If you think about the game of checkers, the checker doesn't transform into something else. It doesn't become a chess piece. It doesn't become another piece from another game. It doesn't transform into something new. But what happens is it becomes something unprecedented in the game. It becomes a piece that can move two ways, not just one. And this is kind of the mindset behind this. When you become a new creation, you don't transform into something new, altogether new, but you become another level of what you were before. If you've given your life to Jesus, you've become unprecedented. Now, the word creation, it's not just new. You become a new creation. That word creation really has three nuances or aspects to it. It means build builder or building. To build a builder 
or a building. I love that. Why? Because as a child of God, you are a new build. You're no longer 1.0, you're 2.0. You're not 1.0, you're 2.0. You're not the same version you once were. You're a new version. You're a new build. And not just a new build, you're now a builder. Because you're helping God build the kingdom of God. Build each other up. Into what? A building. The temple of the Holy Spirit. So you're a new, unprecedented build. You're a new creation. And this is why you're unprecedented. And it's never happened before in all of human history where God's presence has literally indwelled the believer. God would come and dwell with man. He dwelled with man in the garden. He dwelled with men in the nation of Israel. In the flesh, he came to dwell among men as Jesus. But this is the first time in all of history where he has dwelled within the believer, within mankind. This is unique but also remarkable. And when you read the story, when you read the word of God, and you read the story, it's remarkable to see what God has been doing, what he's been setting the stage for, for this day and hour all throughout history, all throughout time. Now, I'll try not to bore you with some of these facts that fascinate me. I love history. Uh, I've said this many times. I will watch the History Channel, watch all the archaeology shows, and, and uh, learn about the background in history. It just fascinates me. But I think when you learn the history or the background of the Scripture, it gives you a new perspective that gives you a greater awe of this God of ours. It gives you this awe and wonder. So I want to show you what God is really doing as it pertains to this day and hour that we're living in. It's really mind-blowing to me, the significance of the day that we live in today as children of God. Think back to Adam, Adam and Eve, the beginning in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve were created, God placed them inside the Garden of Eden. Right, he made this garden for them. And many of us have seen the storybooks, right? You've seen the, the, the stories of God, all the fruit trees, the plants, the vegetables, the animals, and Adam and Eve are running around in the buff, uniquely covered by the foliage that happens to be around them in all the storybooks. You know what I'm, 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 I'm talking about. And, uh, and so we have this image of the Garden of Eden. And probably uh, we've tried to imagine what the Garden of Eden might have looked like. And many have looked at the, the specific geographical clues in Scripture to try to set out to find where the Garden of Eden actually was on the earth at one time. But if we're simply looking for a place of cultivated ground in a certain geographical location for the Garden of Eden, we are way off target. We're way off target. So though the garden was a physical garden, you have to understand what was in the mind of Moses as he's writing these first five books, as God is telling him the story, giving him this revelation. You have to know what's in his mind to really understand what he's saying as he's describing this place. Though the garden was a physical garden, it was actually much more than a physical garden. In ancient Mesopotamia, People understood that the gods, quote-unquote, they were found in really two main areas. They were found in gardens and on mountains. They were found in gardens and on mountains. If you think about the gardens of the ancient times, 
They were beautiful places. They had everything you needed, fresh water, food. They had shelter. They had beautiful places fit and designed for the gods themselves. Why did gods hang out in gardens? Because it had everything that a god could need. And it was set apart from where the everyday person would live, where they had to toil and struggle to survive. It was luxury and ease, usually walled in and protected from outside forces. So gods were found in gardens. And it's interesting that in the very first book of the Bible, in the first few chapters, God makes what? A garden. He makes a garden for the people and himself. Then they're also found on mountains. Mountains were considered the eternal home of the gods because they were very high places too. Climb a mountain was like ascending into the realm of the gods. This is where heaven and earth kissed. If you're on the top of a mountain, you would have a God's eye view of the world. So mountains became sacred, and it was thought that that's where a man could go or a person could go to find a God. And if you think of the ancient Greek civilization and the Greek mythology, their pantheon, all of their gods, Zeus, Hercules, the, you name them, they were on Mount Olympus. Very common. Very, we understand this. Very common. And we can see this in Scripture. There's two Scriptures we're going to read that kind of show you the commonality of this mindset. That if you wanted to find a God, you would go to a garden or you'd go to a mountain. In Isaiah 66, 17, it says, Those who consecrate and purify themselves in a sacred what? A sacred garden with its idol in the center, feasting on pork and rats and other detestable meats, will come to a terrible end says the Lord. So they would make these gardens. They, they would build these luxurious gardens. They would put their idols in the center because they believed that to be the abode of the God, and they would go and worship them there. Also in Deuteronomy 12.2, it says, when you drive out the nations that live there, talking to the nation of Israel, you must destroy all the places where they worship their gods, high on the what? High on the mountains, up on the hills, and under every green Tree. So again, we have this mindset that gardens and mountains were the dwelling places of the gods. And there were common temple structures in ancient times and in these lands where they would build cities. They would build a temple complex and they would build a temple. And if they didn't have a mountain nearby that they could just adorn for their gods, they would build one for themselves. And these structures are called ziggurats. They're megalithic structures that would be a stair-step pattern, and at the top would be the sanctuary or the abode of the god. They would put their idols there, and this is where they would go to worship. So if you think about the time, this is the, the time period, the culture that Moses is in when he's writing these books after they've come out of the nation of Egypt. And even the scripture records about the story of Satan before he fell as an angel. He was an angel in heaven before he fell and lost his place in heaven. Here's what Satan said about what he wanted to do in Isaiah 14, 13. He said, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne above God's stars and I will preside on the what? The mountain of the gods far away in the north. Stars is a metaphor for the angelic realm, angelic beings. And here the, the enemy is saying, I'm going to ascend. I'm going to climb God's mountain. I'm going to set my throne above the angels. I'm going to rule over all of heaven. And I'm going to preside on the mountain of God. I'm going to rule the earth, not God. So again, there's this understanding about gardens and mountains. 
And there is some truth to this because God records this about himself in Psalm 24, verse 3. He inspires the psalmist to write, who may climb the what? The mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. So here, even God himself has chosen a mountain for his dwelling. And in the land of Israel, as he brought them out of the Red Sea and into the promised land, he chose Mount Zion as his mountain in Israel. This is the place where he would watch over the people, where he would preside over his people, and where uh, he would dwell with his people in the holy city, Jerusalem. This is where David moved the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that story as David danced before the Lord, moving the Ark from where it was located to the nation of Israel into the city of Jerusalem. And he brought uh, this this dwelling for the Ark of the Covenant was called the Tabernacle. The Tabernacle was where God dwelled with his people all through the desert, all through the wilderness wanderings. He instructed Moses to build this tent to hold the Ark, which was his throne, and wherever the Ark went, the Tabernacle went, and that's where God would dwell with his people. And so when David brought the Ark to Jerusalem, they set up the Tabernacle in Jerusalem at the base of Mount Zion, and there God was with his people. But when God set up the camp, if you think about the nation of Israel, they're wandering through the desert. When God set the camp up, he instructed Moses to have all the tribes align themselves around the tabernacle in a certain pattern. And here's what God says, instructed Moses, of where Moses and Aaron would set themselves up around the tabernacle. Numbers 338. It says, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, somebody say the east, Before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise were Moses and Aaron and his sons guarding the sanctuary to protect the people of Israel and any outsider who came near was to be put to death. So when God instructed Israel how to camp around the tabernacle, he put Moses and Aaron in front of the gateway or the entrance to the tabernacle, which was on the east side. So the place where God dwelled, where his throne was, where he interacted with his people, where he gave instruction, where he presided over the nation, was in the tabernacle, and the entrance was on the east side. Are you following me? Okay, so we're going to look at how this pertains to Adam in the garden. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they enjoyed everything they could imagine, and then they sinned. And when they sinned, they lost their place with God, and they had to leave the garden. In Genesis 3.24, it records what God did to remove them from the garden. In Genesis 3.24, it says, He drove out the man, and at the what? At the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So if you think of the Garden of Eden, this garden dwelling, the entrance to the Garden of Eden was on which side? The east side. The tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, was on which side? The east side. So we have one of many linguistic connections that connect how God set up and designed the tabernacle, which mirrors his original dwelling place with men in the Garden of Eden. And it was this same design that went into the temple In Israel, when King Solomon built the temple, when Solomon dedicated the temple, he took the tabernacle that housed the ark, 
He brought the tabernacle into the holy of holy, the holy place into the temple on top of Mount Zion. And now God's throne was in his tabernacle designed like that original garden and is now dwelling on the mountaintop. So what did God do in the nation of Israel? He took the garden dwelling where God ruled on earth and dwelled with man and his mountain dwelling where God ruled in heaven and dwelled with the angels and he married them together in the nation of Israel. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. See, the name Eden, the word means pleasure. So it wasn't necessarily a location. It was a state of being. The garden of pleasure, where man was completely fulfilled, lacking nothing. And what does it say about believers in the future when Jesus returns, restores all things, puts away sin and death, and we dwell with him forever and ever? In Revelation 7, 15 through 16, it says, Therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So in the time to come, when Jesus returns, this will be our state. We will be before his throne, and he will shelter us in his presence. What is in the presence of the Lord? It is pleasure to the max. It is Eden. We will have no lack. We will need nothing. Perfectly and completely fulfilled. The time in the future when he returns is a return to the absolute pleasure and fulfillment of God's people. Because we will be dwelling with him. When Jesus returns, it will herald a return to the garden of God. The very place where there is the tree of life. If you read in the book of Revelation, what's in the new city, the heavenly Jerusalem that's on earth. It's the tree of life. Many trees of life. In the original garden, there was a tree. In the new Jerusalem, there's the tree of life. This is where God walks in the cool of the day. And what's amazing is the phrase that says God will shelter them. That word shelter is the word tabernacle. God will tabernacle them in his presence. So we have all of these clues together of what God was doing. He began with a tabernacle on the earth when the earth was all good in perfection. Man messed it up. They got kicked out. So God, honored by the faith of a man named Abraham, gave his children a promise. And through Moses, he led them out of slavery and into the promised land, gave them a covenant, and once again had them establish a tabernacle where God would dwell with his people. And this time it was transportable. It went wherever they went. And then they got to the nation of Israel. They set up a permanent tabernacle in the temple. And what happened? Man messed up again. And not only did they get kicked out of the land, but God left. So keeping these things in mind, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. The glory of God didn't return to the nation of Israel until Jesus showed up in the flesh. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, 
after he gave his life, after he rose from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, and after he poured out his spirit on all who believe, here's what Paul tells the church of Ephesus. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house. Somebody say his house. Together, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord, and through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of his dwelling, where God lives by his spirit. So when God poured out his spirit, began to indwell believers, what happened? His dwelling place on earth was reestablished. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, where am I? Among them. Hey, Jesus. He's here. He's here. Be much better if he was teaching, but until he shows up and starts talking, I'm going to keep going. But he's here because he's in all of us. So God's garden, his dwelling place with man, has been reestablished on the earth. Because his spirit dwells in a tabernacle now made of flesh and bone. But something amazing that we often take for granted. And I love how we gave testimony just a minute ago. Uh, The word of God in Revelation says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you give a testimony, what you're releasing is you're releasing faith to people who need it to hold on to a miracle. It's important. There's something powerful when we gather together. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, and then 22 through 24, the writer of Hebrews gives us a clue. Now, we're his house. We're his physical tabernacle here on the earth. All of us together and individually, we have the spirit of God within us. So God dwells on the earth again, and the throne of his dwelling is the heart of all who believe. We're his physical dwelling. But when we gather together in his name, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable uh, gathering of angels in in a festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here's what he's saying. When you gather together as the people of God, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle in heaven, his earthly garden, A veil opens up, and the mountain and the garden kiss. And God's glory and God's presence is revealed when we gather together. You want to know why? It's better to meet in person than watch on TV. No offense to those watching online, but you know you're missing out. It's not the same. You want to know why? On Sunday morning, everything in you says, I don't want to go. But you come anyway. Why you're always glad you came? It's always that way. You will never come 
feeling like I don't want to go, come and then leave saying, man, I knew I shouldn't have come. Because God's presence is here. This is Eden. You get a blessing and a fulfillment being in the presence of the Lord. The world cannot wrap its mind around. And we're all sitting here. If you were to look on film, you see nothing out of the ordinary. You see people sitting in an auditorium, somebody boring everybody to death on stage, a few chuckles in the audience. But what's happening in the spirit and in your hearts cannot be put into words. And you will leave here completely encouraged. Why is it? It's because right now this is Eden. It's a ministry to your soul you can't articulate in words. And as the members of the temple of God, we get to experience it simply because we're His. And though we have sinned, and we deserve to be cast out of His presence like Adam and like Israel... Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, he pulls us closer. Romans 5.21 says, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Aren't you glad for grace? Talked about last week being secure in his grace. We don't have to fear being kicked out of the garden because his grace holds us secure. We're secure in his grace. And I love what Paul says here. He says it gives us right standing with God through grace and mercy that we receive and we believe. He gave us the right, the privilege to enter his presence. That's why the psalmist says, enter his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Because it's a gift we could never earn and one we don't really deserve. <laughs> we don't deserve it. But not only do we have right standing, as the children of God, we have been returned to our rightful place in his kingdom. You see, Adam wasn't a Neanderthal just rolling around in the garden in awe of the rock. Oh, it rolls. Amazing that. You know, trying to figure out how to invent the wheel. He, he, we have this concept of prehistoric man that scientists want to tell us. No, if he could name every animal on the planet, I'm pretty sure he's a pretty smart guy. Adam wasn't just this prehistoric caveman-like man. Adam was something the world had never seen yet. He wasn't marveling at how rockets rolled or trying to discover fire. He wasn't killing himself to figure out the wheel. He was very significant because Adam was in the presence of the Lord. He wasn't just a simple gardener. God had given him authority over all the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. You have dominion over all the land, the sea, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God had given him authority over all the earth. Just as God had given the angels of glory authority in heaven. Why? Because in heaven, he wanted a family. So the angels of glory are his sons of God. 
on earth, he wanted a family. So the people of God are the sons of God. Sons of God in heaven, on the mountain. Sons of God on earth, in the garden. It's coming. Why was he doing this? Why would he create sons in heaven and earth? It's so that in both heaven and earth, they could be filled with his glory. In Ephesians 4.10, it says Jesus is doing something right now. He says, the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire what? Universe with himself. It says, he rose with the keys of the kingdom, the keys of death and the grave, which means everything beyond this universe is in the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. All things have been given to him. So he ascended into heaven to do what? Fill the universe with himself. Every dimension, every aspect of what has been created is being filled with the presence and glory of God. But we're still on the earth with a job, is to fill the earth with his glory. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Give as freely as you've received. He's given us a mission. We're partners with Christ. He's taking care of heaven. He's given us the mission of taking care of the earth. It goes back to the first commissioning of Adam. In Eden, there was an intersection between heaven and earth just Eden wasn't just a hangout spot. It was God's throne. It was the location of the divine council. In Psalm 82, verse 1, it says, God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on heavenly beings. We see this court imagery all through the scripture, Old and New Testament, in the book of Revelation, as the angels are bringing out scrolls and opening the scrolls so God can pronounce judgment. We see this all throughout this council, this divine throne room, where there are many thrones and judges on the throne. When Eden was on earth, it was the house of God, the location of his throne, and both his heavenly council, the divine beings and elders, gathered together with Adam to preside over the earth. And when sin entered the picture, the angels, the divine council, transitioned from governing with Adam to then judging Adam. God handed the authority of the earth, aside from the people of God in Israel and the land of Israel, he gave everything else over to the authority of these divine beings. When Adam sinned, he not only lost his home, but he lost his place in the divine council. He fell from that place of authority. But look at what it says about believers in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, humanity, because of sin, was cast out of Eden. But because of Jesus, we're brought back in. And not only were we brought back in as a special people, a holy nation, but we've been elevated to a royal priesthood. We have been kinged. By the king of kings. King me. We have entered an unprecedented reality. We've been elevated to royal status. 
And when Jesus returns to rule the nations, here's a promise. Revelation 2, 26 through 28, he says, To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them will I give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Jesus reveals what the morning star is at the end of the book of Revelation. He is the bright and morning star. We'll have full and complete access to the Lord our God. But what gets me here, did you catch that? As royal sons and daughters, as royal kids in the kingdom, we will have the same authority that Jesus has been given. The same authority on the planet as Jesus himself, as we rule with Christ to exert over the planet. So we're not simply returning to Eden and just, pa la 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 you know, in the goodness of God. This is a return to the divine council, the place of rule, the place of honor and authority that Adam experienced on the earth. We have seats preserved for us now in heaven as we are seated with Christ because we're seated with Jesus. But think about the authority. I, I just want to go there for a minute. Can we, can we dream a little bit? I just want, I want you to see the significance of this moment. Think of the authority Jesus had when he was here. He walked on water. He took two little loaves of bread and fish, and he fed the multitude. He laid hands on the sick, and they were healed. He spoke to dead people, and they rose from the grave. He spoke to the weather, and it stilled. He commanded a fish, and it coughed up a coin. He took a sea empty of fish and he filled a net. He told a man filled with a legion of demons, be cleansed, and he was healed. They went into the pigs and the pigs died. He even gave his own life because no one could take it from him. And then he decided when he was waking back up, Three-day nap is good enough for Jesus. And then he ascended in the cloud. And then he appeared in the room. And then he phased through walls. He showed up in glory. And he empowered people who believe to do the same works that he's done and even greater because he's went to the Father. And you and I, will have the same authority. We have the same authority. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 4, here's where it gets real deep. Not only will we judge the nations, because of sin, the angels joined God in judging humanity. In eternity, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 4, he's, Paul says to the church of Corinth, he says, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? 
And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? They were bickering and fighting. And he's like, get over yourselves. We have a bigger picture, bigger things to deal with. He says, don't you realize that we will judge who? We will judge the angels. The angels that sinned. The angels that turned their back on God. The angels that were given authority over us that used it for their own glory. The ones who judge us, accuse us, steal, kill, and destroy in our lives. The ones who are trying to overthrow God's kingdom and rule over the mountain of God themselves. One day, Jesus is going to come back and he says, kids, sick them. Get them. We will open the scroll and read the crimes of the angels. And we will say, depart from the Lord, you who do wickedness. We will join Jesus in locking the key to hell and death for all eternity. This is an unprecedented moment in human history. And the promises that we have awaiting us. See, Jesus has a unique and unparalleled relationship with our Heavenly Father. John 3.35, the Father says, The Father loves the Son, and He has given Him all things into His hand. Because of what Christ has done, Jesus, God has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and declare Jesus as Christ as Lord to the glory of God our Father. God has given him all things. Somebody say all things. And doesn't Jesus deserve all things? My goodness. He deserves all things because of his willingness to go through what he went through. The Father has honored him and given him all things. In 1 Peter 1.4, as the people of God, Peter tells the church, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. This is why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and dust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where nothing can get to it. Peter's telling us there's an inheritance in heaven awaiting us that can never decay, never wear out, will never be taken away. What is that inheritance? As the people of God, he tells us in Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17, it says, For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are God's children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ... We're heirs of God's glory, and if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. What's he saying? He's saying what God has slated to give Jesus, we're getting the same thing too. We are co-heirs with Christ. If Jesus is slated to inherit all things by the Father, what does that mean for us? Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Can you believe that? That's not just something fun to think about. Think about the love and the grace of God on your life. The most valuable thing that God could give was the life of Jesus Christ. Everything else is pennies. Everything else. He gave us the greatest gift. 
So what is the rest of it to him? As the beloved children of God, we are set to inherit all things. This is unprecedented. See, Adam only had a place in the council and authority over the earth. But what's Jesus doing? He's filling the whole universe with his glory. With Jesus, we don't just have power and authority over the earth. We have authority in heaven and on earth. You want to know why Jesus said, whatever you bid on, he- and on earth will also be bidden in heaven? And what you loose on earth will also be loosed in heaven? Because that's the significance and authority of the believer in Jesus Christ. It's our inheritance. Authority in heaven and on earth. When I think about this reality, just trying to imagine how I could grasp this concept, it would be like, being on death row, serving time, waiting for your execution. You're just waiting for the day of your death. And the President of the United States comes to your jail cell and says, if you promise to vote for me in the next election, I'll pardon all of your crimes. That's it? Just vote for me. And so you do. That's a pretty even swap, wouldn't you say? I'd be like, that's a quick, I'll take that. You got my vote. And so you vote. And then here comes the motorcade, President of the United States, congratulating you on having all of your crimes absolved. Are you still guilty? Yeah, you did them, but there's no record of it anymore. It's gone. And he says, I appreciate your vote so much. How would you like to be co-president with me? And sit in my office and share my chair. Isn't that completely ridiculous? But that's what God is doing for his children who trust in Jesus Christ. So we're in this place where we have this inheritance awaiting us. Think about what we're going to receive. Don't you think that's worth the wait? With all the stuff that we struggle through and endure, what's coming for us? It's worth the wait. I was was talking, I can't remember which, which kid it was, but I was talking to one of them about restaurants, and we're talking about something else, and, but the, you know when you, you're really hungry, and you decide you just want to go out and eat, and you, you're like, man, let's go to this restaurant, the food's always great, and, uh, and so you, you get your family together, you go to the restaurant, but they're super busy, and so you have like an hour-long wait. When you're really hungry, and you're waiting an hour long, that's torture, especially when they don't give you nothing to snack on, you know? You're just sitting there, and, and if you have small kids, and they're hungry, and they start acting up, that's worse than torture. I wouldn't w- wish that on my worst enemy, you know. But then the food finally comes. You see the waitress out. She's got the, the, the tray and all the food's there, and it smells amazing. If the food's nasty 
or cold or they got something wrong, that just adds insult to injury. And you're almost like, I'm never coming here again, right? But when it's delicious, what do we say? This was worth the wait. This inheritance is worth the wait. What God is preparing for us is worth the wait. But God doesn't leave us at the table without a snack. Romans 8, 23 through 25 says, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But we look forward to something we don't have yet, so we must patiently and confidently wait. So what's he saying? He's saying that we are waiting for all of the promises of God to be fulfilled. There is a day when all these promises are coming, when we will get to step in the full inheritance, the full rights as as adopted children. But until that day... We have an appetizer on the table that is tasted through the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God in you that lives in you, that has sealed you, that helps you taste and see that the Lord is good. Every time you lay hands on the sick and they're healed, every time there's a prophetic word released, every time you sense his presence, every time you're in that place of brokenness and the peace that passes all understanding comes in that moment and turns your mourning into dancing, everything we experience with God is the foretaste of what is to come. It's not all there is. There's something coming. So God has given us this spirit to keep us going, to help us hold on a little longer. Just wait a little longer. Trust a little harder until all things are fulfilled. So we not only enjoy this place in Christ where we now stand, but we have all this waiting for us in eternity. We are the most privileged, the most significant creature on the planet. We are unprecedented because we've been kinged by King Jesus. And we can move in ways the rest of the world wish they could move. And we get to experience the presence of the Lord in the life of Christ. We get to encounter Eden every time we gather together when heaven invades earth in worship. Beloved, let me encourage you. Don't doubt for a second who you are. You are significant because you're accepted and you're secure by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't doubt for a minute. Don't let the enemy steal your identity for a second. Oh, he will try through trials and tribulations. He will try through suffering, but count it all joy. Because Jesus suffered, we too shall suffer. But fear not, nor be afraid, because he's overcome the world. Count it all joy. In the midst of suffering, we can experience even more blessing, even to the point of death, because on the other side is a martyr's crown, the bright and morning star, the fulfillment of every hope and dream, the source of all life and everlasting joy, the true king to Eden, our king of kings, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. 
Why are you significant? Let me remind you. As a child of God, you've been called. You've been chosen. You've been accepted. You've been secured. You've been kinged. You're not a citizen of earth anymore. You're a citizen of heaven. You're not moving in the same direction as other people. You're going against the grain. You're flowing upstream. You're walking on the water with the king. You're the object of his affection. You're the apple of his eye. You're his sister, his brother, his co-laborer, his house, his council, his garden, his mountain. What you pray for informs him of what the angels need to get going on. You are dispatched for war. You are frontline. You are favored and you matter. You are mighty in the Lord and strong in his power. You are a conqueror. You are an overcomer. You're accepted. You're secure and beloved. You are significant. You're significant. I think I'm done. Beloved, if you're a child of God, repeat after me. I'm significant because I've been kinged by the king of kings. I'm significant because I've been kinged by the king of kings. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, how undeserved are we. What do we say? But thank you. Here am I. Have your way. Save me. Send me. Lead me, guide me. My life is yours. From the moment I wake up to the time I lay my head down, my life is yours. All that I am, all that I have. God, forgive me when I go a different way. But thank you for calling me back. I didn't chase you, but you've been chasing me. And I worship you because that's all I have. That's all I have to give. you today. And God, I pray. I pray for this church. And I pray for believers everywhere who don't know who they are. 
God, we read it every day we open the word. We hear messages like this all the time. You've gifted so many great speakers and teachers. We have access to so much information. We can get the greatest and best teaching at the just the click of a button on our phones or on our TV screens. But yet we still struggle with believing in who we are. God, if you're going to give us all things, what is a healing of cancer? What is a restored marriage? What is healing from past pain? What is hope for tomorrow when we've lived a life of hopelessness? What is freedom from addiction? What is anything that we might ask for? It's nothing compared to Jesus. God, I pray today you would remove the doubt that fills our hearts. And Holy Spirit, you'd help us right now taste and see that the Lord is good. Call us into who we are as the children of God. We thank you for being here, for your presence. If you're here today and you don't know firm in your heart that you're a child of God, I'm going to invite you to simply pray a simple prayer with me. The Bible says if you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe him on his death and resurrection in your heart, that you will be saved. If you want to become a child of God, you want to know the goodness of the Lord. You want to have a relationship with King Jesus. Then give him your heart and life today by simply praying and receiving the gift he's already wrapped up for you. And you can pray right where you are, right there with me and say, Father, forgive me of all my sin, everything I've done against you. It was against you and you alone that I sinned. But God, today, I'm trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior in his death and resurrection. And I'm trusting the promise that all who call on your name will be saved. Fill me with your spirit. Make your home in my heart. Now and forever. In Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those who may have prayed that for the first time. God, I thank you for those that may be recommitted in this moment. The Holy Spirit, I ask you to do your work now. Begin ministering among the people as we go into this time of worship and response. You draw who needs a touch today, Lord, and you begin even now with your healing work, your healing power. We believe that you have given us all things. Our inheritance is all things. So, God, we're not going to talk ourselves out of coming forward today. We're not going to say, well, that, that healing's for other people. We're not going to say, well, you know, that, that's for somebody else. God, I just pray right now, everyone who has been hesitant, everyone who has held back, everyone who knows they need to go deeper, need to come closer, God, that today there'd not be a seat left in the audience, Lord, that we'd come and fall at your feet and receive a touch from God. We just praise you in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Let's stand to our feet as Tony leads us in the song. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. If God's leading on your heart, if you need prayer, you want to go deeper with the Lord, you want to touch from God, you need a spiritual just jump start, you come forward. And our prayer team will be down front to pray with you. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.